Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the long-running battle over the future of policing in the city of Surrey. Now, this could be a crucial week on this file. We continue to expect a decision on this from the provincial government. Will they allow Surrey to keep the RCMP? That's what the mayor wants. Or do they continue the transition to a new Surrey police force? Got Rob Rothwell standing by to discuss. Have a listen to the mayor here, the Surrey mayor. Brenda Locke, who says she's digging in here. They still want, they, they want to keep the RCMP. Have a listen. That is Surrey's choice to make. And council made that decision. We made it five months ago, and our decision has not changed. All right. And she says the decision is to keep the RCMP. Could the province force the city of Surrey to go with the new Surrey police service let's check in with rob rothwell now former superintendent with the vancouver police department i recommend his book 33 years the unfiltered memoir of a cop i'm very pleased to welcome him back hey rob thanks for coming on hey good morning mike you're welcome okay rob we've followed this whole saga here over for many many months now what are your thoughts now on what appears to be perhaps this week some kind of a final decision on this where do you think this one is going you know, uh, <laughs> this could be down in Vegas, uh, you know, getting yeah. odds either way. But I know that you and Keith Baldry uh, were talking about uh, or, or of the view that uh, the sole gen may in fact just order them to transition to the Surrey Police Service. I'm not really yeah. of that view because the sole gen did put out some conditions that had to be met. And, you know, the, the main condition, what this really distills down to is that Surrey Council must supply a report to lay out the plan for you know, returning to the RCMP, and that report must be accompanied by a report from the RCMP, which explains how they're going to restaff Surrey without prioritizing it over any other detachment within BC, because the RCMP and BC are roughly 1,500 uh, officers short of where they should be. So. Farnsworth's concern is, of course, that uh, restaffing Surrey could actually jeopardize some of the other areas that are waiting for uh, an increase in officers as well. So if, if in fact, they can come up with a report that explains how they're going to fulfill Surrey, uh, RCMP, without pulling from other areas, so not robbing Peter to pay Paul, uh, I think they might be able to force the uh, Soul Gen's hand in approving wow. a transition back to the RCMP. You know, and and I think that uh, the RCMP may be able to come up with such a plan. If you think about things like uh, recruiting new officers and uh, incentive programs to have officers patch over from uh, other municipal police uh, police, uh, departments, such as the Surrey Police Service, but even other, you know, uh, assorted police agencies patching over to the RCMP, and even potentially doing a rebalancing nationally where they pull more resources into BC. So it possibly could be done, and I think we might all be in for a bit of a surprise. Okay, that's very interesting. Let's have another listen to the mayor here. And here, here is Brenda Locke saying that she told the Solicitor General, the Minister of Public Safety, Mike Farnworth, she said, look, I told him straight up, this is our decision. It is not the province's decision. If we want to keep the RCMP, that's the way it should be. This is our call. Here's what she had to say, Rob, then I'll get your thoughts. 
We did have, a, a, I think, a productive conversation, and I let him know that it is the uh, jurisdiction of the city of Surrey to make that decision, to make the decision to uh, whatever police department we, we choose to have. Okay, so who has the hammer here? Like, is she right when she says this is Surrey's jurisdiction, we get to make this call? Because it seems to me that Farnworth, if he wants, under the Police Act, does have the authority to force this through. Uh, I largely think that she's correct in that uh, council and mayor can make a decision about the policing service. But that policing service has to obviously provide adequate and, uh, you know, a first-class service for the citizens of Surrey without compromising any other RCMP detachment throughout B.C. And and so, uh, I, I, you know, whether we like it or not, I, I kind of think that she might have the hammer in this case, provided that the RCMP can come up with a report that explains how they're going to restaff Surrey and, and right now, as you know, Assistant Commissioner Brian Edwards has indicated that 15 SPS officers have already patched over to the RCMP and roughly another 81 have expressed an interest to do so. So, you know, maybe now the, uh, the wind is starting to blow the other direction. Speaking of Rob Rothwell, former and superintendent at the Vancouver Police Department, talking about the looming decision here now on Surrey policing. Will they keep the RCMP Will they continue to transition over to the Surrey Police Service? What do you think is going primarily through the mind of Mike Farnworth here as he, as he makes this decision? I mean, this is obviously going to land on David Eby's desk. I think this goes up to the Premier's office as well. Right. Uh, what do you think they're talking about behind the scenes? What are the factors here they're weighing? Well, I think they're looking at it uh, you know, from a political perspective because for the sole gen to order uh, a duly elected council and mayor to reverse the decision that they made to you know to overrule that decision i think it has to there has to be a very high bar in there in which the soldier can can articulate and demonstrate how uh, retaining the rcmp is going to negatively affect policing throughout british columbia or specifically within surrey so you know, the soul gen, I think, is going to have to, to produce some pretty good evidence of that concern. Without that, then I, I, I feel it's a bit of a done deal for the RCMP to move ahead. Okay, very interesting analysis, Rob. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. You bet. Okay, take care. Thanks. All right, we continue to follow the Surrey policing saga. It appears this week could be the big week for the final decision on this. Does the city get its way and keep the RCMP, or does the province force the city of Surrey to continue with the police transition? We've got Paul Dane standing by to discuss. Have a listen to more of the mayor here. So this is Brenda Locke, the mayor of Surrey, warning that if the city is forced to go with this new police force, it's going to cost a ton of money for local taxpayers. Have a listen. With high interest rates, cost containment is critical. With the Surrey RCMP, we know our costs, and we have fully budgeted for them. With the SPS, we're looking at a 10% tax increase for policing alone next year, and we're in for more surprises. Okay, so you heard her say there are a 10% increase just for policing services, all right? So there could be even more tax increases on top of that. Let's check in with Paul Danes now. Keep the RCMP in Surrey. Hey, Paul. Morning, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks a lot for coming on. Would you say that the cost here is one of the key the key issues here? Is it, How much more will it cost to go with the new police yeah. force? Well, I think, I think Mayor Locke very eloquently outlined the key issue. It's going to cost a substantial amount of money. My own personal opinion is, and it's often overlooked, certainly by the provincial government, is the passion 
that people in our community have for the RCMP. Our organisation has participated and initiated two referendum petitions. One got 52,000 signatures, the other one got 42,000 or just over. Additional, additional to that, we've got about, or had, uh, about 8,000 lawn signs out in the community. But polling after polling after polling puts uh, the desire of the residents uh, to keep the RCMP at about, seven, about 70%. And the RCMP is very, very high profile and much loved in our community. And the big issue is consent. Number one principle of policing, as outlined by uh, Sir Robert Peel, uh, founder of Modern Policing, is you cannot police a community without consent. Norm Lipinski and his group have no or little consent from, from the community. Lastly, in recent weeks, we've seen two displays from the RCMP musical, um, musical ride. That attracted over 10,000 people, raised somewhere between seven dollars to $10,000 for local charity. We're very passionate about this, and we want to keep the RCMP, and we're sick to death of them being denigrated um, quite wrongly by some, you know, I don't know, near-do-well politicians. I'll uh, rest my case. Okay. Six, okay, the phone lines are open. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. We expect the decision potentially this week, final decision here on the city of Surrey and the future of policing there. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Let's go to Ed on the line in Surrey. Hi, Ed. What do you think? If Mike Barnworth and the provincial government want to impose what they believe is right for Surrey, then they have to accept any fallout that might happen. Let the people of Surrey decide. Don't make it a provincial government decision. Thank you for the call. Paul, would, would you acknowledge that the province does have the power to force this through if they want? Well, but, you know, we're dealing with the government who many years ago, NDP, said that government can do anything. I think um, that if they try to impose the SPS solution, I think that Mayor Locke's been very clear, and our council, it'll go to ju- judicial review. Um, what more can I say? I mean, you cannot impose a, a, a police service on a community without consent. And time after time, not only have we had these petitions, we elected a mayor and council who ran pretty much he shared other, other things to run on as well. But the number one issue was keeping the RCMP in Surrey. And the people have spoken. And the people's uh, uh, will should, should be, re- or desire should be respected. Generations of Canadians fought and died for these basic democratic rights, and we are being denied them. Let me, play a, let me play a clip here for you from the other side here, Paul. Get your thoughts. <laughs> now, this is Darren Shepard. He is a police officer with the, the new Surrey Police Service. He's with the union there. And you hear him make an argument here, and you hear this frequently against the RCMP in Surrey. Have a listen to his argument here, then I'll get your thoughts. Darren Shepard. The RCMP policing model uh, doesn't work for a city the size of a large municipality, the size of Surrey. Um, the uh, Surrey Police Service will provide an element of local accountability that is missing from the RCMP. What do you say to that argument, Paul? It comes up very frequently. The RCMP are not suited to police a large municipality. Go ahead. Oh, oh, on local accountability, Chief Lipinski is frequently, and, and uh, the Surrey Police Unit 
have um, continually refused to meet with us. They only want to hear the answers that they want to hear. In terms of the police model, um, the RCMP is not an appropriate model for uh, municipal policing. Just recently, in the last week, major articles in Nova Scotia, Halifax Regional Police Force, they have a crisis on their hands. And the crisis is this. They're losing members to the RCMP, and it, it, which, you know, I think says it all. The RCMP nationally, they went through a rough time in COVID, sure. But nationally, they've now recruited over 600 um, uh, experienced police officers uh, that will be going out to communities across Canada. Um, they've been okay. policing, sorry, for 73 years. I don't yeah. know how long the SPU have been around, but it's not 73 years. Let's squeeze a couple of calls in here. Rob on the line in Chilliwack. Hi, Rob. Go ahead. Hi. Good morning, Mike. You know, uh, I, I'm hearing a lot about this. This has been going on a long time, obviously. The fact is, is Brenda Locke is right. The people have voted. It is their jurisdiction. It's not Mr. Farnworth. But as I said before, mm. Mike, there's a pattern with this government. They want to impose, you know, four lots on, on cities. They want to, they overrode the decision of Titsilano. It won't surprise me if they go this way. With, with the city police. But the fact is, why should taxpayers have to foot the bill? The citizens of Surrey, if this is what the NDP wants, then they have to impose it on that council, which is wrong, I believe. Obviously, you get that. But why should taxpayers, why should I out in Chilliwack have to pay for that? It's not okay. right. The citizens are going to get a belly full of tax increases. So, Mr. Farmer, as I've said many times, you got to stay out of it. And by yeah. the way, they've policed that city for over 70 years, and all of a sudden... They can't yeah. do it? No, it's not right. Thank, thank you, Rob. Well, I think it really does maybe come down to a, a money issue. Um, do you th- the, now, the province has put $150 million bucks on the table to help with the transition to a new police service, uh, Paul. Is, would that be enough money, or would there still be no, these huge tax no, hikes? We've got, a, we've got no, 30 no, seconds. No, no, it certainly wouldn't. The, there's not enough money in the, in the Bank of Canada to, to, to compensate us for losing the RCMP. No question. It doesn't come anywhere near covering the cost of the SPS, who to date have produced no plan, and which, or if they have, farm work hasn't shared with us. Nobody okay. knows what these guys are going to do. Paul, thank you for coming on. Welcome. All right, let's talk about the strike by actors and screenwriters that has pretty much shut down productions in Hollywood now and the impact it could have right here at home in British Columbia and especially in Vancouver. We have a big film and television production industry here in B.C., over 80,000 workers in this sector across the province, and there's lots of concerns that the strike south of the border, yeah, it's going to impact productions here in B.C. as well. I've got actor Brian Markinson standing by to discuss. Have a listen here first to actress Fran Drescher, famous for her role, of course, in TV's The Nanny, and she's now a union leader in Hollywood. Uh, Have a listen to her here getting fired up about this strike. The jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and dishonored. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be 
in jeopardy of being replaced by machines. All right, let's talk about the strike now and its impact here in the film and TV production industry in Vancouver. My guest is Brian Markinson. Brian is a Vancouver actor and producer. He's appeared in Mad Men and many other TV shows and movies. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Brian, thanks a lot for coming on today. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you, I appreciate it a lot. When you listen to that that clip there from Fran Drescher, the the actor from The Nanny, boy, that that's kind of gone viral here. Her very passionate speech here. So, would you agree with her with her passion on this? Like, do you think that the the issues she outlined there are pretty much on the money? I do. Uh, I think that uh, you know there there are hills to die on, and I think this is one. I think this is uh, historic and uh, and we're going to be feeling the impact of these negotiations uh, for decades to come, I think. Yeah, and like you heard her say, this is a moment in history, and I, and I know you feel strongly about it as well. Why is it such a... Let's talk about a couple of the issues here. First of all, the transition to streaming, streaming content here. How has that impacted things? And I know there's concerns about actors maybe not getting paid their fair share of royalties and things, right? <laughs> Well, yes, and and up here in BC, it's a little different model. We we do not work on the residual um, system. The model down with Screen Actors Guild, though, is that there everybody has been profit sharing in 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 the profits by way of residual payments, and and the, you know I still receive payments from the time that I was I spent ten years in Los Angeles working down there exclusively and that money is continuing to come in and for a lot of people that is uh, a lot of their livelihood and because you have to make a certain amount of money now in order to be um, covered by uh, the medical program down there and uh, for some of these folks, residuals are the thing that sort of carry them across the finish line there. And the ones who who, who don't make it across that line, uh, you know, it, they're in trouble. How about the uh, the AI issue, artificial intelligence? Where does that fit in? Because I've heard concerns like from screenwriters who have worried that artificial intelligence programs like chat GPT could be programmed to just write like write movie scripts or write TV show scripts. I, I think for the writers, it is a much bigger deal in, in, in the immediate future and not just writing scripts, but editing. Uh, and, and, and so, yes, I think for actors, it is, at this point, my feeling is, and and this is just my opinion, it's it it is less of an issue right now. I mean, yes, for if you're a background performer, they have they've been doing it for years. They've been scanning and and reproducing crowd scenes and the like. Uh, I don't believe it's as big an issue right now. I think the bigger issue is the new model that has been created, and how do we profit share? on the streaming and the digital uh, because it's been a certain way for many, many, many years since the 1960s, that model. And now it's completely different. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's time to pay up. <laughs> I think in terms of the producers, they're the, they're the ones living in the big houses on the, on the big Hills down there. 
Speaking of Vancouver actor Brian Markinson about, about the strike that's impacting hitting here at home in BC too. Brian, what are you hearing among your colleagues or the productions in British Columbia? Have you heard about any productions being being shut down here in BC? Are there fears that opportunities going forward here could uh, dwindle for you? Well, I think that that the productions that were planning on being up here and starting are no longer doing that right now. I think that there are a, a few existing um, productions that they have an agreement to carry forward, uh, but there's not a lot of new production. There's a few Canadian um, programs that are going to go into production in the fall and are continuing on. But, it, you know, not just actors, but all the ancillary um, support structure around our business uh, is going to be affected for hopefully not, you know, months and months, but it is now. Yeah. And that's a lot of jobs, right? Could you talk a little bit about that? Because maybe there's a perception among in the public, they hear about an an actor strike and you may think of like Hollywood stars who are making big money, but you know, not all stars or not all actors are making huge money. And, and there's a ton of other people behind the scenes, right? Like set designers and, and caterers, like you mentioned. Like, could you talk a little bit about those jobs and how people are feeling in that sector? Well, I, I think they're, it's, it's very, very scary for them uh, to, to address what you just said. Yes, I mean, an incredibly small percentage uh, of of actors are are the ones that 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 people like can identify who are making that big money and that's the, also the challenge it's it's you know joe q public is going to be hearing about actors quote unquote whining and they see oh well you know it's tom hanks and al pacino and julia roberts they're millionaires but the vast majority of us our journeymen and this is how we make our living and and beyond that yes caterers scenic designers uh drivers it, it the list goes on and on and on i mean it's a what an 11 billion dollar industry or something up here I, it's it's incredible and it's you know it's going away until uh you know these negotiations are are taken care of you, you mentioned, Brian, that you spent a lot of time living in Los Angeles and working there. You're an American who now lives full-time in Vancouver. When you talk to your friends back in Hollywood, what what is sort of the mood among among actors and screenwriters and other people working in the business? Is there Are a lot of people feeling similar to you that this is sort of the hill to die on here and people feel very passionally about it? Oh, yeah. They're, uh, they're, they're scared down there. I have friends who are showrunners. Uh, one in particular I'm thinking of has a a big, big show that was supposed to go into production, uh, has a big star attached, and and they might lose that moving forward. So even on that level, I think everybody's scared. But but even more than that, they're resolute that um, they're going. They're not. They're they're going to wait it out. They're. I, I think this is this is huge. This is a big negotiation in it. We haven't seen it's been 60 years, right, since uh, since anything remotely resembling this sort of shift in 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 the landscape. So, uh, yes, they are scared, but they're resolute. And you're going to see folks having to take day jobs uh, again, um, the ones who were making a living and the ones who, who, you know, the majority of, of us, you know, 
have day jobs anyway. So yeah, uh, scared, but resolute and not going anywhere. Ryan, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you, Mike. Thanks so much. I appreciate you, uh, you know, you given given a voice to this. All right, let's keep talking about the strike by actors and writers in Hollywood, the impact it could have here on the film and TV production industry in British Columbia. My guest is Ellie Harvey. Ellie is the president of the Union of BC Performers, which is a branch of ACTRA, the Cinema, Television and Radio Artists Union. Ellie, thank you for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome. How big is this industry? I mean, we're talking tons of people. We're talking tens of thousands of people, right? Yeah, we have over 8,000 members uh, just ourselves. But yeah, it's, it's up, I think, upwards 60,000 members in BC, $3.6 billion industry. It's a lot. Yeah. How, what kind of impact is the strike having in, on the ground here in BC right now? Well, none of us are working. I mean, we've we've dwindled down to about six productions, and uh, there are no productions coming in. That started with the writer's strike, and it's certainly reinforced by the Screen Actors Guild after strike. So uh, there's not much going on. We're waiting to see what happens and eager to get back to work. Wow, six productions. How how many productions would normally be up and running right now? Oh, over 40. Wow. Yeah. Wow, boy, that's a lot of people on the sidelines. What kind of pe- how many people are are out of work right now? Um, I don't have exact numbers on that, but it's substantial. And and as an actor myself, I mean, I was used to doing several auditions a week, and really, there's none. So it, it's really we, we're all fighting this fight. We're all you know battening down the hatches and preparing for what is an existential fight for performers. Yeah, why do you describe it that way? Why would you say it's an existential issue? Well. You know, when you have proposals, uh, getting rid of background, that's, you know, that's the canary in the coal mine. And then next is one-line performances. And then next is your face put on someone else's body. And it's just diminishing the value of the work we do and redefining it without our input. Yeah, so you're talking about artificial intelligence there, right? AI? Yes, I mean, that's one of the biggest issues that we're facing. But there's also the way everything is monetized is kind of in lockstep with that because it's all about tech businesses taking over broadcasters. You know, we're talking about Netflix and Amazon and Prime and Disney Plus and all these mega corporations that are not paying actors the use fees that is their due. Yeah, I just spoke to uh, Vancouver actor Brian Markinson about this, and he mentioned like mm-hmm. the the transition to a streaming model and how that yeah. has impacted things like residuals. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like, is are actors yeah. not yeah, get, I, I not getting the, the residuals they used to? Be, sure, the old model would be that if you had a sale of your movie or series, you would report sales. Uh, in the case, let's use SAG as the example, and then SAG would take that amount and uh, distribute it to the people who were on the show. We have a similar model. We have a prepayment, so uh, a chunk of that is prepaid over a period of time, and then once that's exhausted, then it's called royalties, which reflect payments to our actors based on sales. But uh, because they're not broadcasters and don't have a traditional agreement with us, streamers don't report their sales. And then oftentimes you have streamers producing their own shows for their own use and claiming no sales, let alone not having to report them. So, so the amount of, uh, of you know, income I, an actor used to make has already been challenged considerably, and it's just going to continue. So we have to like, put, a, put down our stake and say, this is our territory, you're not living up to it, and you need to find a way to address residuals and royalties. 
Speaking to Ellie Harvey, Ellie is the president of the Union of BC Performers. It's a branch of, of ACTRA, the movie and television and radio artist union. Would you say, what would you say is the, the sort of morale uh, among, among your members on this? I mean, are, are people just, are they frustrated to be sort of dragged into this on our side of the border or do they feel strongly about the issues? Oh, they feel strongly about the issues. And yeah. we're a service town. We do American production here, and uh, we are 100% behind uh, SAG and the Writers Guild. Uh, we know that all the work that comes here is uh, is going to be impacted by the gains they make in their negotiations, and uh, our our negotiations will follow the gains they've made. And, um, and so we absolutely are ready for this fight. We saw it coming a long time ago. And, you know, when you have the head of Google AI, you know, resigning because he thinks that there are moral dilemmas, uh, this is this is it. And governments are, are slow voting everything. And so unions have to take this into their hands. Yeah. Are there I mean, this is a U.S. strike. And I guess Canada's, yeah. you know, Amer- Canadian artists are being sort of impacted as on the side. But what about what is the status of your own contract with with people working here? Is that up for negotiations, too, or? Well, so Canadian productions continue because uh, they, you know, they're contractually obligated to, and we have a contract in effect currently until the end of March. Uh, any SAG performers on that need to speak to their union. Uh, their union will address whether an interim contract will be issued, depending on how far into the project they are, if it was signed prior to the strike vote, so or, or sorry, the strike de- declaring the strike. So, um, so there are. It's, projects that will finish but no new project with SAG performers will be coming ellie we're following it closely thank you for your time today i appreciate it i appreciate your attention to this matter thank you very much let's talk about the hundreds of wildfires that are burning across british columbia right now the record-setting wildfire season in canada continuing to intensify here now we've got military units being deployed in canada to help out as well i've got doug donaldson standing by british columbia's former minister of forests first let's have a listen to this report this is from global news Already deemed the worst wildfire season on record across Canada, the epicenter has shifted to British Columbia. More than half the country's active fires are now in B.C., the majority caused by lightning strikes. When these kinds of fires happen, when they're lightning strikes like this, it's often a storm that comes in and produces multiple fires uh, simultaneously. Okay, let's discuss the situation now with my guest, Doug Donaldson. Doug is with the Wildfire Resilience Project at the University of Victoria, and he is British Columbia's former Minister of Forests, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. I recommend his op-ed in the Vancouver Sun on this topic. Give me a follow on Twitter. I'll post the link there for you. Doug, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. And when we look back, uh, when I think about your time as the, the forest minister here in British Columbia, how much have things changed? I mean, you sort of start your article in the Vancouver Sun uh, pointing out how much this how much things have changed in the wildfire, the wildfire threat in our province over the years. Yeah, things have definitely uh, changed as far as the frequency with which we're experiencing catastrophic wildfires. Uh, most climate scientists are saying that what they thought was going to be happening 20 or 30 years from now in BC weather-wise is happening today. So uh, the situation has definitely progressed a lot more quickly than anticipated. 
When you take a look at the wildfire map in our province now, what goes through your mind? We see hundreds of fires burning right now. Well, I just, uh, you know, feel for the people uh, experiencing smoke. Uh, We've had some here in the Northwest, and uh, I feel for the people who are under evacuation alert uh, and order. I was talking with some people last night, and uh, they were pointing out on the BC Wildfire app, uh, the map that's shown there shows red dots where active wildfires are. And uh, there's so much red on the map that you have to zoom in to actually see uh, the exact location. So it's a it's a pretty dire uh, situation. Yeah, and we're, it's becoming more and more familiar. And you mentioned in your op-ed that we look back at some of the other catastrophic wildfire seasons that we've had in British Columbia, 2017, 2018, 2021. I mean, these, uh, these are not very, it's not very long ago. This is just becoming a, a regular occurrence, it seems. Yeah, they sure are getting more frequent. Uh, I was minister in 2017 and 2018, and uh, yeah. we, we took some steps then to try to uh, get prepared and, and do more, and uh, th- those steps are underway, but more is needed for sure. Let's talk a little bit about the steps and, and what could be done here to better prepare British Columbia for these events, to make our province more resilient, uh, to maybe try and reduce the, the impact of these fires. What do you think should be at the... What, what, what has been done so far and what more needs to be done? Well, when, we, uh, when I became minister in 2017, uh, it was apparent that we needed uh, more resources directly for uh, fighting fires. Uh, I think the average uh, budget had been $60 million approximately a year, and, and that's up to $200 million a year. So that creates more year-round positions for uh, BC Wildfire Service, you get uh, much more uh, lengthy stays of people within those jobs, so you get more uh, institutional knowledge. Uh, we also needed to ramp up the fire preparedness aspect, uh, how to uh, make communities safer. We created a program that uh, dealt with the uh, ability to, for municipalities to um, deal with fire resilience within their communities and at the edge of their communities, and then also uh, out on the landscape beyond that. So. Those are things that are underway, and as I said, uh, more needs to happen. What really, uh, I think, the approach that's needed that you alluded to in my op-ed was an overall approach by government uh, across ministries and between uh, BC and and First Nations government. Now, let's talk a little bit about those communities and how they're preparing and and what more needs to be done. So I'm I'm thinking about people who may live in, in communities that are surrounded by forest and, and have a, f- a fire threat in their communities and faced with the prospect of evacuation if a fire starts close to where they live. You know, we all hear about these uh, interface zones, as they're known, the forest that gets very close to to uh, centers of population. What is being done here to protect communities from wildfires, and what do you think specifically needs needs more to be done? Well, first of all, specifically, as a... Um people living in communities that are facing fire threat or uh, potential fire threat. Uh, there's a great program called Fire Smart. Uh, BC's ramped up that program. It teaches uh, you uh, how to fireproof your home. Uh, you know, if you live in a semi-rural area like I do, more of a rural area, I've, I've removed a lot of trees off the property to try to create that fire break. Um, it uh, involves things like just getting debris, needles, and and leaves uh, away from your close to your house. Those those kind of things. So, there's that's a great resource. I, I 
I think when you're talking about the overall picture, though, and and this is uh, part of a team that uh, you said I was with, uh, you know, at the University of Victoria, the Polis Wildfire Resilience Project. It's uh, how to make uh, BC the most wildfire uh, resilient place on Earth. And the Forest Practices Board report that came out a couple of weeks ago um, just pointed out that the nature of the challenge we're facing uh, requires an overarching approach with wildfire at its center across government ministries and, and as I said, between BC and and First Nations governments, and and that's that strategy. Then will will set the overall framework where we can find gaps that are needed in in actions and bolster up actions that uh, are currently underway. What about removing fuel from the forest floor, whether it's fallen dead timber? I remember hearing some talk about doing that as one measure to try and protect communities. How realistic is it? to do that given that British Columbia is such a vast province and some of these fires are starting remote areas. Well, exactly. I mean, that's why you have to triage and, and uh, uh, allocate your resources to places that are uh, most at risk. And, and, and that's uh, part of the work, you know, that we're looking at. You need to align uh, legislation and policies and, and develop funding models. I, when I talk about aligned legislation and policies, for instance, uh, one area is around liability when it comes to uh, prescribed and cultural burning. Uh, we need to uh, amend some of the legislation to make that a little uh, less risky as far as um, you know, the, the legislation that's required there to protect people who are undertaking those kind of uh, um, activities in the BC Welfare Service. And when I say develop funding models, um, removing fuel from the forest floor is an expensive proposition. Uh, and so, uh, you know, what are some uh, funding models that could help that? Uh, for instance, I think of the, the co-generation um program uh, that used to be held by BC Hydro, where um, they would pay uh, a certain amount per kilowatt hour to uh, organizations that set up uh, cogeneration facilities. In other words, using this, these fuel from the, from the forest floor and uh, to uh, burn and create electricity. What about other jurisdictions? When you take a look at other jurisdictions that face a, a similar wildfire threat to British Columbia, are they doing things differently? You, you point out that in California, for example, the governor there created a, a task force on this that reports directly to his office. Do we have something similar here in BC? Not yet. In the Forest Practices Board, uh, that, that independent uh, watchdog um, points out that that's something that they believe uh, the provincial government should lead uh, that kind of um, uh, initiative. California uh, had created that task force in 2018, so five years ago. I mean, there's many differences between us and California. Uh, obviously, California has the entire population of Canada in a small uh, land base, and uh, they've experienced years of drought, and they've got a lot of built infrastructure like houses into those uh, risk, risky landscapes from a wildfire perspective. So, you know, uh, it's it's no wonder they created uh, this initiative five years ago, but it's something I think that is needed uh, in BC. You know, we have yeah. government ministries that are focused uh, on uh, wildfire, like Ministry of Forests and the BC Wildfire Service, but we have other ministries that have uh, initiatives underway that 
that need that wildfire lens, like uh, a biodiversity initiative under uh, one ministry, a climate adapt adaptation and or climate preparedness and adaptation strategy under another ministry. Uh, we've got yeah. uh, jobs, economic development, and innovation, uh, where you know you could see a lot of the work on the landscape that has to be done around fire resilience could be fitting under a, a strategy in that ministry. So an overarching overall approach would definitely help uh, uh, set the direction. All right. We continue talking about the wildfire crisis in British Columbia. There are hundreds of fires burning around the province. My guest is Doug Donaldson, British Columbia's former Minister of Forests, and we're talking about how our province can be better prepared for wildfires going forward. Let's have a listen to this report from Global News here briefly on the resources that are coming to British Columbia to help fight these fires. Have a listen to Global News reporter Megan King here. To aid in firefighting efforts, Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair approved a request for federal assistance Friday night, which will see military mobilization to B.C. We're still really early in the fire season, um, and I worry about, you know, first responders, um, our firefighters just becoming incredibly exhausted. Yeah, you heard the voice there of Kira Hoffman there at the end, who's a wildfire researcher at UBC. My guest is Doug Donaldson, B.C.'s former Minister of, of Forests. Doug, do we have enough firefighters in British Columbia? Do we have enough resources? Uh, do we have to rely on the military and other countries to help us here? Is that sort of going to be just normal every year now? Well, we definitely uh, can use help. Uh, the uh, resources are going to be there as the government's position. Uh, that, hence the reason we spent $1.8 billion on forced firefighting in the 27. 2018 and 2021 seasons combined. Uh, the firefighters on the line right now need uh, breaks. Uh, there's mandatory breaks. And so having the military come in uh, provides uh, uh, some freed up uh, resources on things like traffic control and mopping up operations. So some of those uh, wild, uh, wild firefighters from BC can move into the frontline positions and others can get a break. So um, you know, training is a big is a big part of it, and and uh, BC uh, needs to boost up that aspect as well. Yeah, I, I, that's something has been on my mind here the last couple of days, especially after we we lost that young woman who lost her life last week fighting this fire in the line of duty, just nineteen years old. Our firefighters are, are they adequately cha- trained? I mean, we have these are very young people here who are out here fighting these fires. Are they adequately trained? Yeah, I mean, it makes me sick to my stomach to uh, think about uh, that young woman and her family and yeah. friends, uh, the impact on their lives for the rest of their lives and the fact that she lost her life. Uh, yes, uh, from my experience, uh, we have a, a fantastic training uh, program. It's always been updated uh, and people, uh, young people are introduced to these situations uh, slowly, uh, you know, in, whether it's uh dealing with spot fires and not on a main fire. Um, the fact that the budget item uh, has increased in the fire management uh, area allows for uh, people to stay on longer into the season and to create year-round positions. What we faced when I came in in 2017 is uh, there was so much of the work was seasonal and, and, um, and you know, <laughs> cost of housing and everything else, uh, nobody, as they get older, can survive just on a seasonal job. So, 
having more year-round positions uh, enables that experience to be uh, held on to within the BC Wildfire Service. Squeeze a phone call in here. Jock on the line in Parksville. Hi, Jock. Go ahead. Yeah, morning, Mike. I'm an old logger. I've been in the industry, or was for many, many decades. And in the years ago, when we finished logging the area, we would wait for the weather, usually in the fall, and burn the slash. It it alleviated the the uh, fire concern. It also killed certain diseases. And in the end, it left carbon in the ground for fertilizer and a lot easier to plant trees. But then the environmental groups got together and they didn't like us putting smoke in the air. So they cut that practice out. So now you've got a whole bunch of slash there with kindling in it. And it's okay. Well, let me get to me. Let me get Doug's thoughts on that. Doug, we just have 30 seconds left there for you to respond. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. A great point. Many of those areas are anchor points now uh, for into the future when um, fires need to be fought. But uh, yes, you can have smoke uh, in a controlled manner uh, when you burn after uh, logging or you can have uncontrolled smoke that's even uh, worse situation. Okay. So uh, good, good point there. Doug, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.